1: Awesome. Why, why? I
2: am. It's Rosé. I love that you're doing that.
1: Well, it's four.
2: It is definitely four. I said what I'm really saying is, can I have <laughs> Yes! How Absolutely, great. of course you may. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, Johnny. Cheers. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a lot of rhymes right with Johnny, but here it is, stage door Johnny. Hello, hello, and welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life, and life in the theatre. My name is Jonathan Cake, and my guest this week, well, uh, she is the star of imperishable movies of all our sort of collective youth, of uh, like The Goonies, and Running on Empty, and Mosquito Coast, and Parenthood. She won an Emmy for The Good Wife on TV, she was in that brilliant TV show... Um, Raising Hope, she is a former member of the famous Steppenwolf Theatre Company. She's a three-time Tony-nominated actress on stage. She's won an Obie Award. She's won a Drama Desk Award. And she founded and runs a not-for-profit organization called A is 4 that champions reproductive justice. She is the engine of creativity, productivity, restless ideas, and <laughs> enormous fun. As you'll hear, she is the great Martha Plimpton. Oh, it was such a treat to sit down with Martha. Oh, you you may know, regular listeners to this podcast may know, that one of my stated aims is to try to create the atmosphere that you are pulling up a chair at a late-night theatre dive bar listening to a couple of actors chat about this stuff. And when Martha went to the fridge and produced a bottle of rosé and started rolling herself a cigarette, I sort of thought, oh yes, we're going to get closer to that idea than any of the other episodes, and I think we did. I do hope we didn't uh, slur too much. We met a couple of weeks ago, in late February 2023 in Martha's West London flat. She's transplanted from being a lifelong New Yorker to living a lot of her time here in London. And, uh, you know, the London stage is the better for it. We talk about all sorts of great, great stuff. And Start off by talking about what the perils are of learning lines, trying to learn lines for another gig when you're doing a play. It doesn't always go well.
1: Ladies and gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Ms. Plimpton and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your
2: beginner's. So you've just finished... Yeah. uh, ...playing Quees, a role... Traditionally played by a man. We'll come on to that later. Yes. In As You Like It, directed by Josie Rourke, at... Now, hang on. Do we call this theater at Soho Place? I don't know. Uh, I mean... I'm not sure. It's got a little at icon. It's got an at icon. Yeah.
1: And then it's all one word, Soho Place. I mean, I would just call it Soho Place, because saying
2: at Soho Place is weird. You just finished doing it, and Mm. before I turned on the thingy, you were saying that you were running off to do another job straight afterwards, mm-hmm. and so you thought it was a good thing to have yes. something straight after. Why?
1: Well, because that way you don't have time to think and miss everybody and right, be sad, right, right, right. and it all it all gets sort of delayed. It's good and bad. It was good in that in that sense, and it was bad, or I shouldn't say bad, but unfortunate in that. It was like one scene, but it's a very long sort of sequence. So it's not really one scene, but it's a long sort of sequence, self-contained sequence in what this. What you were
2: shooting in Vienna. What
1: I, what I was shooting. And the first day was on the Monday. So we closed Saturday night. I enjoyed myself. Mm. All my I had a it's bunch of friends in from New York. Yes. They came. Of course, we went to the party afterwards. You're not going to not go to the party. And then I got on a plane on Sunday, the next day at like noon. And then the next Monday, got up at 4.30 in the morning and got into makeup and realized I didn't really know
2: my lines. <laughs> <laughs> you, can hardly, you can hardly be blamed for that.
1: I mean, well, I, I had been working on them and working on them, but when as I was working on them, I realized that I was, I, first of all, I missed an entrance Wait, in the missed,
2: show. In As You Like in It. In As You Like It. You missed an entr- entrance because you were working on Because I was working, working on my lines.
1: And then I reversed a couple of words or a couple of phrases. And that always makes me really, really hate myself. Because you can't do that, in my mind anyway. Although nobody would really know except for the fact that all the lines were on (laughs) screens. We will get
2: on to the reason why there were subtitles in that that show. But it's true that people could read. They could read every time you got something wrong. (laughs) Which, by the way, (laughs) people were slightly less scrupulous than you. About inverting stuff, and I was like, mm, I "Normally, pick you up on this, right. but it's right there." Well, above your the head. good, th-
1: the funny thing was that Tom Meissen, who is so dear and wonderful and brilliant and good and kind, was playing Touchstone, yeah. and he could take liberties a little bit sure. if he'd forgotten something and go "What?" and look at a, you know, look up there. Somehow, the I didn't feel the freedom to do that for some reason. I don't know why, right. but anyway, so. I find it very, very hard to work on something else
2: while I'm doing something. Me too.
1: It's extremely difficult. It's I don't like know these people your hair who can. And
2: rubbing your stomach. It's,
1: it's very hard, and so even though I thought, like, okay, well, I'm, I know this, I know this. I really didn't know it. Yeah. You don't know it until it's really in your body,
2: and there was no way for me to get it into my body. Okay, so in the context of leaving as you like it, right? It was. Good for you because you just hopped off one bus and got onto another. Right. Bus. The other bus was quite chaotic, a bit scary. Yeah. But you didn't have to say goodbye, or right. And I didn't have to like else on the other bus. Yeah,
1: like Sunday. usually the day after you close the show, the next day is a little bit like the come down Drug off of like. Down. Yeah, it's yeah. like the come down off of ecstasy. It's you know, you're Monday. just like, oh my god, <laughs> what is the point? Yeah. Why am I
2: alive? Now, isn't it fascinating that Richard Eyre described it so brilliantly? He said, you go from thinking you're in a Ptolemaic universe where you are the burning center of (laughs) everything that's important. You are the hot molten core of the universe to living in a Copernican universe where you realize you're a tiny star. That's a a really beautiful and very poetic. a bigger planet, which is still insignificant. And essentially you are a speck of cosmic dust. Yes, and it's really true, isn't it? And it's such a funny thing. Have you found that hard to negotiate throughout your At, at times, it's been career? very painful. Has it? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'll tell you, when, when we closed the first Shakespeare I ever did, which was such a deeply powerful experience for me, mm. um, for it? so many reasons, Pericles... I've done all of these lesser known, sure. and including the
2: rarely done
1: Cymbeline,
2: <laughs> which we did together, which at gets Lincoln a production. Center. Yeah,
1: which has a production literally running somewhere in the world every single day is always called rarely
2: done. Anyway, true, <laughs> but but in most, you know, it, but certainly in the London and New York stages, it's pretty much the Halley's comet. Yeah, yeah, of Shakespeare. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, but yeah, yeah it, was, it was it was Pericles. Pericles, and it was at the Public Theater. Oh, it was a heady time. And it was with Campbell Scott yeah. playing Pericles, who is—I don't know why—he's just not the world's greatest I don't star. Understand, I, don't understand uh, I mean, that to me, he is one of the most perfect actors in the world. He's I'm brilliant, totally he's handsome, yeah. and he's funny. He's yeah. hilariously funny, yeah. and he's humble. Yeah. He's got his own life, and he does his own thing, and he's got his family and his kids yeah. and everything. But he's—he's he's one of the
2: maybe one of the best actors. America has. I totally agree. I've never seen him on stage. You know, oh. also, by the way, how about being George C. Scott's? I know. And son, Colleen Dewhurst.
1: Colleen Dewhurst.
2: And still being as crazy good as he yeah.
1: is. And humble. and, and Yeah, he's
2: the loveliest man. I he did really is. I a TV is. show with him and I just thought I was blown away but I've never seen him on stage but I know that people rave about him. Well, when treasure.
1: we were doing that show, we would go out pretty much every night. With Dan Moran, who's another wonderful, brilliant New York actor, who worked at the Public and a million things, Dan Moran played the like the the guy who tries to kill Miranda. Is that her name, Miranda? Pericles? yeah.
2: All I know is he that takes her off to Gower, murder.
1: right? He, I think he was Gower.
2: Okay, good. good yeah, good. yeah. That is that, that the guy? Makes it sound like I know it. That's another. I've never thing. Read it I'm going to jump
1: it. around a lot here, but that's another right. thing. When I close a show, I don't remember a fucking word oh
2: interesting not a word you press eject
1: it's not even my choice it just goes out the next day i don't remember a thing move to trash
2: yeah Maybe it's because we must, because we only have a finite amount of space. Maybe, maybe device. it's just because I have ADHD. Maybe, you know <laughs> what I mean? Isn't it also to do with interest? I mean, obviously, you, you know, these things come back right, to us. And I want right. to ask about that. What shows and parts come back to you later on? Because my, my life is haunted by things I've done and which yeah. I can do again. Maybe it's also because we can't sustain that level of passion for it once it's Gone. So Maybe like that's true. Love affairs. You have to right. move on. But
1: then you look at certain other
2: there are I mean actors,
1: brilliant actors much better than we are. I dare you. Who <laughs> who who remember every fucking word and who can bring up a, you know a Shakespeare know. line you know, yes. boom, like that. And yes. it's like, what the how dare you? I mean, I could probably do the speech from As You Like It again just because it's so It's on so many
2: details, so Uh, so we should know that (laughs) J. For anybody who doesn't know, but I'm sure you, if you're listening to this podcast, you mostly do, has one of the most famous the Seven (laughs) Ages of Man speech only in Shakespeare, but in all literature, like in literature, yeah, yeah. Seven Ages of Man. But what I was going to say about
1: Pericles, when we closed that show, I was bereft. I remember our stage had was all sand. And I remember I took a bottle of sand, mm. I, I took a bottle and filled it with sand, and then I we went to the rap party and I left the bottle at the rap oh. party and I was just bereft,
2: bereft. Maybe the universe was saying, "Leave the sand. Go, leave this, leave right. it all yeah. behind, leave, leave it behind." That yes, the grains yeah. fall through your fingers, literally Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: and metaphor.
1: But be- I guess it was because it was my first Shakespeare. It was a somewhat traumatic experience for me as well. Why? Well, I wouldn't say it was the easiest time, although it was an extremely joyful run. It wasn't the easiest rehearsal process for me, oh. not because of any of the actors. The actors were amazing. Anyway, it was just so hard to say goodbye to it because of all that I felt like I didn't, I put into and invested, yeah, and yeah. and also when you're younger too, I think you fall in love with the people you work with so much more easily, you know. And obviously, I was so, so in love with Campbell, I even though he, I think that's clear. Yeah, I mean, he, even though he played my father, I was like, I don't care. He's beautiful and brilliant okay. and amazing and great, and maybe because he and kind your to me and very kind, to, maybe, maybe <laughs> we could get onto that. All you know. I did visit the Freud Museum in Indiana. <laughs> so
2: there are some things worth I, examining there. I fell in love with him when we filmed, filmed our yeah, silly little you TV And You can't not fall in love with people. him. Yeah, sure. yeah. It's very hard, isn't it? We light these fires and we have to put the bellows of our care and attention on them to, yes. to really stoke them up so we can do the work. And we wouldn't be human if we didn't find the... The, the gap between our lives sometimes and the fiction that we're acting, oh. which by the way is about as hot a fiction as you can be it's like, I mean I, I did a play I did Anthony, I played Anthony and Anthony Cleopatra at The Public and at the RSC and I started rehearsing 48 hours after my dad died mm. it was a pretty similar mm. thing and yeah. you feel like well look, the play is already a burning building and then I'm adding the kerosene yeah. of my mad grief. Well, your
1: brain doesn't know you're faking your b-
2: it. Your brain doesn't know you're faking it. That's exactly
1: Your right. neurons and all those little wires that get connected all through your life, old and that, that never stop, by the way. I wish I still had it. I can't find it anywhere, but a wonderful old actor friend of mine named James Karen, who was probably best known in New York for being the Pathmark man for a many, many, great many years. What's the, what's the Pathmark? Pathmark was a, a chain of like, of grocery stores okay. and drug store, you know what I mean? Okay. And he was a Pathmark man, and, but he was also a great friend of my grandfather's ah. and he was a bad guy. He was the bad real estate developer and poltergeist. Got it. Got it. So I met him when I was eight years old and... Taking my first flight to Los Angeles to see my father. And he was flying back and forth between New York and LA to do these Pathmark commercials. Anyway, the plane got diverted because of fog. We landed in San Francisco. We had to spend the night in a hotel together. I mean, I was eight years old with this strange man that, you know, I never met. And we had the best time Mm. ever. And we were friends ever since. Anyway, he gave me. Many, many years later, he printed out for me an academic paper by Janice Rule. Now, Janice Rule had been an actress in the 60s and 70s. But she gave it up to become a psychoanalyst. And she was particularly interested in actors and working with actors and understanding actors and the actor's life and what happens and what happens to the brain. So this whole paper is about how... Actors are vulnerable to, particularly in the theater or even sometimes in films, to falling in love and having affairs and losing their minds and going nuts. And it's not because they're narcissistic dicks, although that's surely part of it in some cases, but it's also because your brain doesn't know that you're lying. It doesn't know. And so your brain, or this was for theory uh-huh. in any case, yeah. that your brain is just... just it's in love with this person or whatever it is. Right. And so you fall in love with them too. Or you fall in hate with them or yeah. you're allergic to them somehow or something. But
2: it's a physiological as well as really? an emotional thing. It's like a sort of act of self-hypnosis, right? Mm-hmm. That, we, that we put ourselves into these states. And as mm-hmm. you say, our poor bodies, our poor minds, our poor hearts, mm-hmm. don't. I didn't get the memo mm-hmm. that this is a job for 350 bucks that- a week. <laughs> Right, right. Oh, Broadway, that no right. one is supposed to take too seriously. Yeah. We mustn't take away our, you know, the business of our own agency, mm-hmm. which is true, right? We can choose to withhold. But of course, <clears throat> you know, if we are in a particular state and particularly primed by a particular piece of work that is, you know, really inflammatory, yeah. say some of the greatest love poetry ever written, right? You know, like you're dealing with you know, Shakespeare or, or, or any of your most great plays, you know, you are in a particularly vulnerable state and mm. your mind wants to do the best job it can. So, mm-hmm. of course, it's going to commit probably beyond the line of what is sometimes yeah. healthy or advisable. So your Celia, brilliant actress, Rosaling Ellis, mm-hmm. is deaf. Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Hearing impaired. Mm-hmm. And she uh, signed her mm-hmm. part. She did speak at times... But mostly there was this amazing, uh, exuberant physical language, which mm-hmm. I certainly have never seen on a stage before. Mm-hmm. Hence the fact, as we talked about earlier, there were the surtitles of the play right. on four walls of the theater. We were mm-hmm. all in, you were in sort of the round, I guess. or it, We like, were in the rectangle. In the rectangle, nice. <laughs> and you could see the text of the play. No matter where you were sitting. Right. And I loved it. I thought it yeah. deepened everything about it cuz i thought oh, i just thought you've got so much of their relationship for mm-hmm. free the sense of abandonment that mm-hmm. happens between Z- Celia and Rosalind and
1: i think the the Celia and Rosalind relationship was so much deeper this play like any 450 year old play that's endured and is beautiful can suffer from pre- preconceptions and how it's always been done or how they did it or how that guy do it or how she do it And because this just broke all of that apart, I think it was really spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally made it fresh, of course. It felt like a a completely new and also contemporary, without it being designed contemporary, contemporarily or anything like that. We didn't do anything ridiculous with the costumes or anything. We didn't, like, place it in, like, I don't know, Nazi Germany or whatever. But... We had two deaf women in the play, Rose and and then another deaf woman, Gabriella Leon, who is also deaf but verbal. And even though Rose is also verbal in her life, she chose and wanted to play it with only with sign except for one specific moment when she's the banishment scene when her father is banishing uh Rosalind, and she's arguing for Rosalind's you know to yeah, stay, yeah. and that's when she breaks her sign because she knows her father doesn't like it when oh, she signs it's
2: very moving
1: and man. it was very moving, and the first time I saw it in rehearsal, literally I mean I sobbed, I sobbed, mm-hmm. and even thinking about it now because she was bringing all of her own knowledge and her own experience to this thing, and without you know tacking it on in any way, it felt perfectly organic it felt perfectly right and it also you you felt so much more of Celia's bravery and and her you know I guess towards the end of the play she kind of somewhat disappears a little bit and and you wonder why but in this production she's an autonomous being you know she's not just the sidekick you know it deepened their relationship hers with Rosalind's was beautifully played by Leah Harvey, who also happens to know sign language, or did a bit when we started. I was going to ask about that. And then that's she, a big she, yes, somebody yeah,
2: learning all those lines and
1: sign yeah. language too. Well, she she had some knowledge from her youth because of a family member who was deaf. So I think it was sort of already, you know, like the membrane had to be cracked on the memory. But she was totally game to keep learning, and also, of course, Tom Meissen's signs as well mm. because most all of his scenes as touchstone are with Celia and Rosalind, so he learned sign. Now, it wasn't strictly British sign language. It was BSL combined with a little bit of, like, performative sort of miming combined with another thing that... I've forgotten the word for it. Please forgive me, but it's it's used in performance a lot, in deaf performance a lot, which is sort of like a, a, a sort of language vernacular, a hand vernacular, you know, visible kind of expressive, magical thing. So it was a combination of all of those. But it was absolutely stunning and beautiful to watch and really just, I don't know, changed my whole conception of how theater should be and the concept of accessibility. It's Josie Rourke's desire and wish to make theater um, that is more accessible and more present and more real
2: to everyone. So now listen, I often start these chats with the same question. The question is, do you remember when you were first in a theatre, when you first went to the theatre? But having done even a minimal amount of research on you, I think I sort of already know the answer, which is you can't remember when you weren't. In a theatre. Yeah. But would you mind, can you, are you very bored talking no, about your no. your deep past? Uh, it's just such an extraordinary and wonderful story. Do you mind telling us? So, imagine, <laughs> imagine I haven't said any of that. <laughs> I just said, Martha, when were you first in the theatre? Well, Johnny
1: Cake, it's, uh, it's interesting you ask. <laughs> because? Because um, I was conceived during the original Broadway production of Hair, and my parents were dating. They dated for a brief period, and my mother uh, was pregnant. And she did the show
2: with me. Your mother is the actress Shelley Plimpton. Shelley Plimpton, Your yeah. Your dad is the actor Keith Carradine. He is. And Martha makes eye roll. Just had to. <laughs> it was just too good to right. Not describe. My father is Keith go. Carradine. There you go.
1: And so I was in my mother's belly, and then in a theater when I was born, and then on tour with Hair, probably till I was, I don't know how old exactly I was, two and a half, three years old, right. something like that.
2: Right. Um, so you were on stage in the original production yeah, of Hair. Yeah. In your mom's time, Yeah. That's the yeah. craziest yeah. and the most beautiful yeah. thing.
1: And you spent know. almost every... No, I did spend every single... I mean, I was there eight shows a week, so... <laughs> Yeah. I mean really? either being babysat when I when once I was born I was backstage being looked after by other members of the cast or by other, you know, I was I've I've got a rolling roster of babysitters and people I still meet people still come
2: up to me and say I
1: babysat you and I don't know
2: who the fuck they are. So she would you know, she would always bring into the theater Yeah.
1: It, I mean, we didn't have the... was your
2: childcare. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's so amazing. We didn't have the money for a babysitter, and I don't even know if, if we did, if she would have left me I, every I night. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And so maybe this is too much of your deep past to re- remember, but do you have any sensations or memories of that time? I sure do. Do you?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember loving watching the show. I think one of my most sort of piquant memories oh, is of the women singing White Boys. In the same sequined sort of tube dress. They were all three women in their Supremes wig. And then they were wrapped in this sequined, basically tube, like a dress. And they were up on a scaffold. And I remember being utterly in love with that image. Um, Yeah. I remember being really, really terrified of the guy in the gorilla suit. That really scared me. Of course, and and I never liked masks or anything after that. My whole childhood, oh. I, I hated masks. I hated hairy gorilla costumes. Even though you
2: must have known the guy in the gorilla suit, I didn't. Probably I didn't know
1: that him. he was terrifying. Okay, I didn't know that. Got it. And then I remember being brought up on stage during "Let the Sunshine In" quite a few times, and and <laughs> not liking it at all, and hiding my face oh. in whoever was holding me oh, in whoever's. Yeah, just being really, really shy and terrified. And but I don't know why that is because if you would have you know asked me to sing a song off stage, I would have been like, yeah. You
2: you were quite a performer.
1: Quite the performer. Got
2: it. (laughs) So you were. It was literally your play space. Was a theater. It was my. It was my world. It was your world. My world. My entire world. And even though being up on stage, all those faces looking at you, lots and lots of voices singing one of the great songs of musical theatre was weird. Yeah, and 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 scary. Yeah, Yeah. scary. And the gorilla was scary. Mm -hmm. Do you you remember the ambience of it all fondly? Did it feel like a, a benign space to be little in?
1: I think yes. I think what was scary about it, now that I'm thinking about it, was that it was... Everyone was sweaty, it was bright, it was loud. Yeah. Everyone was exuberant and and everyone was looking at us. Yeah. And it felt like I was, I don't belong here. Whereas in normal life, if I was backstage or in our apartment or wherever, I was in a constant state of performance, constantly. I mean, I was doing impressions of my Nana. My god sister tells a story about how I was in the apartment and I was standing in front of the television set, you know, back then in the 70s when the televisions were giant and they had this sort of like curved thing. And, and I was standing there with a paper towel tube, like an empty paper towel tube, and standing in the television like dancing. I was maybe two, three years old and they were like, what is she doing? And then they realized that I was looking at my reflection in the television with the paper towel tube singing. So it's, it's been relentless. It's been nonstop until finally when I was about eight years old, a woman that my mother had been working with named Elizabeth Suedos, who was uh, an extraordinary, crazy, brilliant, avant-garde theater maker in the village. And my mother had been doing a, a show with her at the village gate called Nightclub Cantata. Um, And I would come with her to rehearsals, and I would sit on the edge of the stage with a microphone, not plugged in, thank God. And Elizabeth said, or Liz said, uh, I want to do a film workshop of my musical. Now, she had just done Runaways on Broadway. I don't know if you remember the show, but it's a brilliant, brilliant show. And it was sort of in the vein of hair. This was in 77, 78. And uh, she said, but I'd love, I want Martha to be in it. So that was my first time on stage, oh, like, wow. learning a song, learning lines, learning stuff.
2: And because you'd have the upbringing you'd had, mm-hmm. did you have any reservations, do you mm-hmm. remember, about doing it? You and mm-hmm. I, I can take no, the I was so excited. toilet roll tube. It and- wasn't
1: even that, like, conscious. Okay. It was just...
2: What you were going to yeah,
1: do? Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. Okay. It was the summertime. I wasn't going to be missing school. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, instead of camp, I had gone to sleepaway camp once and hated it hated it. (laughs) Why are you waking me up at 7 a.m. to play Leapfrog? You know, like, this is, yeah, I'm an actress. Um, So yeah, even though it was a, and, you know, look, working with Liz was no walk in the park. She was a, a very dedicated and very serious person in that world at that time, and she could be scary, but... I still really loved it. I loved the camaraderie of it. I loved the, the actors. I loved that whole thing. I loved the whole world of it.
2: And I read somewhere that she was quite shouty. I remember you. Yeah, yeah, she was.
1: Like, I don't want to make it seem like she was a bad person because right, she right, wasn't. Right. She was brilliant, but she was not a kindergarten teacher. Well, she was these, a fucking theater director. You know the, what
2: I mean? Sure. These are the things, by the way, that would all have to be different now yeah i i make no value judgment about that whatsoever and having had you know eight nine year old kids myself Mm. i would hope it would be better and i wouldn't have Mm. some strange lady who however brilliant she was shouting at my kid if they wanted to go off and do a play i would qualify that statement i wouldn't say she was shouty but i would
1: say that she was maybe not great with the empathy part she was she was more scary than shouty you know, like we, I, we, when we were doing, I remember when we were doing Runaways and there were a bunch of teenagers in that, as well as some adults, some, you know, people in their 20s and early 30s. And we would gather around in a circle and play, what's that game you play like Dead Man where you'd like wink at people and oh, you, yeah. then you're, do- you're dead? Uh, wink murder? Yeah, murder, yeah. murder. Sure. And we were playing it and I guess we got a little rowdy and she said, okay, you're all fired. And we're like, what? Oh, I you're can't. all fired. My God. And if you can't take this seriously, if you can't be quiet, you're fired. You're out of here. All of ew, every single one. And literally when we got in one of those giant elevators of the public theater, you know what I mean? Uh, we all piled into the elevator with our coats and our bags and we're like, oh my God. What the fuck? <laughs> and then the, 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 door, the elevator door was like just about to close and, and, and then it opened again. And, and I remember her assistant was like, her assistant, whose name was Judy, I think she was a wonderful woman. She said she was just kidding. She was just kidding. Come on, come on back. So that was my first encounter with True Insanity, with the, like, a, you know what I mean? With yeah. like a like a person who just doesn't realize what yeah. their impact is. So stuff like that. But so I wouldn't
2: say she was abusive No, on no, level. no. No. Was your mom in that show too? No. Okay, so this was just you. I never acted with my mother. Oh. No, no. So this was just you yeah. going to the theater every night Sometimes twice a day and, and, and making your own. Well the way. film
1: workshop was like a two week thing that oh, was okay. different. We didn't really perform it, but we sort of we rehearsed it on a stage and we performed it on a stage and but the next thing I did was another Liz Suedo show called the Haggadah. Because why not? I mean, obviously, look at me. I I don't know what a Haggadah is. It's the book of Passover. Okay. It's the story of name. The Jews Flight from Egypt okay. and it's the story of Passover and it's what it's the book that you read along with every Passover Seder. Right. And this was this was another Liz Suedos play, but this was now this was a full production. And Julie Taymor was doing the puppets. Wow. She did she did shadow puppets for it. And she also created like giant mask puppets and she created the set and everything. Wow. And yeah, and that was a full run, like eight shows a week after rehearsals or after matinees, we would go across the street. We were working at obviously the public theater and then we'd go across the street Mm -hmm. to this um, little burger joint, which was in a basement I think for years after it became like the theater where Blue Man Group did their show. But oh, yes. anyway,
2: I know exactly where that yeah, is. Yeah, next to Indochine.
1: Yeah, we'd go downstairs and it was a great burger joint, and yeah. they had a pinball machine, and a jukebox, and so we, you know, play Blondie records, and, and I'd play pinball for hours. It was really great. And wow. then I'd go back to the theater and do
2: the, the evening show. So you loved the world of it. Yeah. By now, the world of it had stopped being sensorially overloading yeah. and was sweaty and intrusive and loud. Yeah. And now it was something that you really felt like this was something you loved, the family yeah. of it you loved. How do you remember the performances going? It's interesting you ask, Jonathan. Okay.
1: I remember really loving it and being nervous. I remember one night... The play would open with myself and another little boy, who was playing like baby Moses, like young Moses, and we were two little eight, nine year old kids. And we would open it by asking the the four questions: Why on this night do we recline instead of all other nights? Why on this night do we eat the bitter herbs, etc.? And I came out and I asked the fir- the fourth question first, and then he would he would repeat them in Hebrew. So, I came out and I asked the fourth question first, and my heart stopped. Oh. And then I couldn't figure out how to fix it. So, I asked the fourth question again, and I couldn't figure out how to fix that. And then I was in a panic, and I couldn't see, and I was blind. Oh. And then I, I asked the fourth question four times so. <laughs> That's a good Why on this question. night do we recline instead of on all of them? really nights? important. <clears throat> I think that's the last question. I'm pretty sure that's the last question. Anyway, I asked one question four times. And then after we did that, like the cast would come out and we'd do it. And I just remember sobbing, Uh just sobbing on stage, sobbing, Uh sobbing. It was so traumatic and so horrible because you couldn't go back. You couldn't stop the train. And it was really horrible. I was just humiliated and I felt horrible. I mean, I think my mother must have comforted. Of course she comforted me. But I I don't remember anyone really making that much of a big deal out of it, which is probably a good thing, but I will never forget that
2: moment. Wow, how fascinating. But the rest of it was awesome. <laughs> right. Apart from you that know, one. and like
1: it, when it went great, it was great.
2: Got it. Did you carry on doing theater throughout your um, teens? Yeah, because you very quickly after that became a movie star.
1: Yeah, I did. Pausing. Yeah.
2: Great. More wine. Like. Sure. Can you be bothered? I mean, yeah. Yes. So how when you did that when you did the second one, the story of Passover, the Hagada. Yeah. He, he, Hagada. Hagada. Forgive me. How old were you, roughly? Too Nine. Much? Nine. Yeah. Talk about apprenticeships. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you literally breathe the air, imbibe the air through your mum on stage yeah. while you're doing this show, and then you're backstage all this time learning the etiquette of how all that goes. And, you know, sensorially, it's in your body. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing it. Eight, nine, you're doing it. Were you being paid? Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course. How did yeah. that feel? You're nine years old? And well... It works?
1: I didn't really know how much I was making and mom was just putting it away, Got which it. was actually, nobody can believe that that's what my mother was doing, but she was. <laughs>
2: sure, she was. Yeah. So from your te- young teens, mm-hmm. you start to go up for movies and you get cast in this string of extraordinary movies, which as is a theater podcast, we don't need to dwell on. But, right. but what I'm curious about is, did the theater suddenly seem less glam? No, no, no. Interesting. Look, when
1: you're growing up in New York yeah. and you're basically conceived in a theater, you know what I mean? And your your mother takes you to see Titus
2: Andronicus when you're like 6 years old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, like there could be nothing more glamorous.
2: Titus Andronicus, for anyone who doesn't know, is the goriest yeah. of all the Shakespeare. Yeah, people are eating in pies. Right, right. There's quite a lot
1: of. I mean, really there was X-rated so much, much blood. There was so much blood, and I was like, "Ooh, wow." Um, you know, but like from my earliest, I remember my mother took me to see Streetcar Named Desire when I was young. I was maybe five, four, or five. Every single time we passed a wedding dress in a window, I would stop and say, "Blanche," because it was a beautiful, like soft, sort of gauzy white dress. Okay, you know, and I go, "Blanche, Blanche." So there couldn't have been anything right. more
2: sure. extraordinary to right. me, right? So, did you manage to keep up theater, or did those teenage years when you're doing all those extraordinary movies?
1: I did do a few things. I did some smaller workshops. I did some staged readings, or I did a lot of, um, like, I remember J. Smith Cameron and I working together oh, on something
2: great,
1: ages and ages ago, um, wow. I, you know, but my mother's uh, desire to keep me sane and not turn into an asshole meant that I was not constantly working. Oh, she, so she I would did that very one, consciously. Yeah, totally. I okay. would do one job a year, maybe one or two. Oh. You know, and and so I was not, like, pounding the pavement and going from job to job by any means until I was much older.
2: Do you mind if I ask you a a little bit about that? And tell Mm -hmm. me if you don't want to talk about it. It's no big deal. Because me and my wife are Mm -hmm. both actors. I'm always so intrigued Mm -hmm. by the kids of an acting couple. Yeah. I just think it's so interesting Uh, because I suppose I'm looking forward and thinking... I mean, is it just like a sort of tyranny that we're born into, like a sort of plumber's family or, a, you know, s- someone who works in real estate? Or is it just sort of, you know, the it's the conversation around the dinner table or it's just, as in your case, mm-hmm. it's very literally the, the landscape that you grow up in. Mm-hmm. Does it just become the family business and therefore it seems like an obvious thing to go into? And I'm always intrigued because I wonder if it's uncomplicated for both parties. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that it can't, be completely uncomplicated. Can well, it be? I think I used to use that plumber analogy, right.
1: like family business analogy, in, in the context of my father's side of my family. Um, just as a way to. Because his
2: grandfather was. A, my also, grandfather was also very an actor. Very actor yeah. yeah. John Carradine.
1: Yeah. But I think it was an inaccurate one because I wasn't raised by my father. Right. He had little to nothing to do with my childhood or my upbringing. And so. In that regard, it wasn't the family business. It was something that my mother did for a period of time. She, she stopped doing it when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, it wasn't paying the bills. And oh, really? she also didn't have a passion for it. She just didn't. Whereas for some fucked up reason, I did. Or, or some good reason, I don't know. Right. I did. And, and so she went into like, the nine-to-five world and, and still in a creative capacity. She was a research librarian for many years. She didn't have the the passion, the love of it right, that I have. Right, I mean, right. she came into it accidentally. Right. She was a hostess at the night owl when Jerry Ragney and and Jimmy Rado came in and said, "What are you doing Tuesday? You want to come and audition for us?" Really? That's how they cast most of that show. Uh-huh. So she had no, she had no. I'm I'm going to be on Broadway one day. No, it was right. all accidental. <laughs> right. Do so you know, she,
2: and she did that brilliant thing which I always admire people for of realizing it's not for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, I think she did it for my early years of my infancy because it was the easiest thing she could right. get, you know, right. to support a child. We weren't receiving any support from my father, and so you know, it was, and she, her whole community. I mean, she was almost right out of high school. She was like eighteen or nineteen. Really. So, yeah. it was her, like that community, that sort of downtown, and and then she met a bunch of actors, and they were all her friends, and all of our friends when I was yeah. growing up were in the theater world and actors, and do you know? So it just sort of, it's like a little, you know, it's like a waterfall. It yeah. just keeps going. Yeah. But yeah. she was like, this is the most demoralizing thing a person can do with their life. I'm not interested. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so I think on that level, it's also sort of part of why it was very clear to me, well, from very early on, that this was something I had to want to do. Uh And if I didn't want to, I wasn't going to. And that she was not going to take me around on commercial auditions and dress me up in a pink bow and to go, Coke is it? You know, whatever. That was not going to happen. She was not going to be a stage mother. Um, And if I wanted to do this, it had to be because I wanted to be an actor, not because I wanted to be a movie star. It had to, or or whatever, a star on any level. It had to be because I wanted to do this because of a love of doing it. And because I love doing it. Not because I was pursuing some kind of fame or other kind of thing as a means to an end yes i think that and that's that all comes from my mother um but it 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 didn't feel like a family business to me growing up you know i think it might have if i had grown up with my father in la or you know had anything to do with his world but i mean i'm maybe i would see him maybe once a year for like two weeks until i was about 11 so there was about a four-year period there where i would see him for two weeks out of the year and then I didn't see him again until I was, I really didn't spend any time with him right. really, until I was much
2: older, in my, actually my early 30s. And training, I mean, I, I suppose nope. at this point, no, 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 I know you didn't train, <laughs> but did, you, did it ever cross your mind to do that? Or did you just feel like, I've, I've trained? <laughs> I, I mean, I think we could already see you've trained.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny, when I was younger, I had a real bias against acting coaches or acting training uh-huh. and I'm not sure why that is I'm not sure if it came from my mother or what it came from or the fact that I all of our friends were actors and they weren't like you know going to school or right. whatever that, they were just do, they were avant-garde doing they were avant-garde you know yeah. they were making crazy downtown yeah. stuff you know yeah. so what the fuck is like Juilliard to them you know what I mean right. it's like a total class thing anyway also yeah, I think yeah. I think the, the the idea of training was, to me, like, why? So I can be a pompous, stuck-up actor? Right. You know what I mean? Right. That was kind of what I grew up thinking in yeah. my mind.
2: Do you ever regret it?
1: And There have been times when I have, only since I've gotten older. I've thought, you know, I've done this since I was a kid, and in a way I wish I'd come to it as a conscious sort of decision. As I got older, I used to think that, because then I could have made those kinds of choices. But look, I didn't graduate high school, I didn't go to college, and I've been working since I'm whatever, and I've been supporting myself since whenever. I think the only reason I really wish I had any sort of formal training is because I would have loved to have had better posture. (laughs) Better posture? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to have had better posture and to not lose my posture. voice
2: every time I do a show. Right. Well, I can see how that would be an inconvenience. Yeah. But but the
1: I've never noticed. I'm developing this dowager hump. No, and that's it's also why
2: <laughs> dowager hump. I think the kids call it tech neck. Is that just tech because? Neck. Yeah, because you're, because I'm on a device. Right, you're just right, right. Moving down, so the but bone I've comes But I've always had this terrible
1: posture, like. I just do not think the of way you. the way I stand is very
2: scolial. On stage, that is, by the way, not true. You mm. had none of that going on when we worked together.
1: However, when we worked together, I have always had a tendency when I speak to thrust my
2: head forward. Huh.
1: Which is something I would have liked to have had trained out of me younger.
2: Okay. Because it's so unconscious. Yeah, right. Right. I've got a bunch of physical things too. Yeah.
1: That's my physical thing. And I went
2: to drama school. Yeah. you, You saved your money and yeah. you can do it exactly <laughs> as you should it's totally fine
1: and i actually i've seen a few actors who've gone to drama school doing the same thing with their yeah. head
2: thrusting yeah, yeah, forward yeah. and mm. oh no it's not the you know one-stop shop for yeah. all your little yeah foils. but
1: that's the only reason i think i would have right. i you know what i mean and right. i think right. i'm over that now i don't think i think when i was in my 30s i might have been like Oh, I should have gone to drama school or I wish I'd gone to Juilliard or I'm but, 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 but that's all. Um I think it's really about a, a class thing and a thing about a feeling of being inferior and you know, coming from a, a poor household like that had no money when we had no money. So I think that's what it's coming from, rather than no. anything about my actual ability or how I feel about my work or no.
2: Yeah. Have you ever walked into a rehearsal room or into a company of actors and felt like that? Felt inferior? I have. I have. Do you, does anything come to mind?
1: Well, it's never been because of the actors, ever. Never. But I think I've felt... There have been times when i felt like, God, I wish I had more of an education or something like that.
2: Gosh, interesting. Yeah. I think of you as whip-smart. I really do. Well, thank you. No, I'm serious. You, you I've never. I never felt... You know, we were working on this really abstruse late right. Shakespeare together <laughs> at Lincoln Center, the sort of bastion of right. New York high culture, right? And it's difficult. And you were playing the lead part. You are playing Imogen. And I never once felt like, oh, this woman, you know, needs to read the notes. I think it has more to do really with how people treat you. And that Do you feel like you've been treated like that sometimes? At
1: times, I think, but by some directors, huh. maybe even by the director we worked with, oh. maybe sometimes by theatres. Like, oh, here's this scrappy girl who's come up, you know, who's never done anything else, and you know what I mean? Yeah. And and so in that way, I kind of, I think I've maybe at times been, I don't know, seen as like this just kind of lifer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Rather than like some precise... yeah you know, finely cut jewel who comes in with all of their book reading and their knowledge and all of that stuff. stuff. But those kinds of thoughts come in and out and they don't stay with me.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: All right. Martha Plimpton has gone for her interval drink. I suggest you do too. She's pouring me one as we speak. Please come back for, for act two of my chat with Martha. You will not regret it. Honestly. You're gonna really want to. <laughs> You're gonna really want to hear the noise that the phrase first stagger through" elicits in Martha. It's like a kind of animal howl. Um, how the trilogy of uh, Tom Stoppard plays, "The Coast of Utopia," changed her life. Oh yes, the ongoing beef she has with Ethan Hawke for not. Telling important theatre stories fully and properly, why she thinks he's an asshole for not including her in those stories, and one of them is about when a beloved colleague of theirs died on stage. It has a happy ending. I know that doesn't sound probable, but just listen to the second part of this conversation. Uh, why she loves tech rehearsal. Oh, oh, yeah, and a. T- And a story about me being asked to take my clothes off on stage in the play that Martha and I did together, and then being asked to put a towel back on, because after a few previews, the director decided he didn't want to see that. (laughs) Anyway, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Johnny, stage, stage, stage door Johnny, he knows that there's no money. Please stage stage door Johnny, stage 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 door Johnny.
0: Hey, folks! I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft tissues